for, successful, now, nanny, shouted George, as Pelham lifted the heavy lid, look out, I am sure I heard something stirring inside, Pelham held up the candle and looked eagerly into the dark chest, empty, quite empty, he cried, in a tone of the utmost disgust, nothing at all in it but an old letter, and he threw the paper onto the ground by the side of the chisel, I told you so, began Nanny, but the sentence was hardly out of her mouth before she gave a little shriek and leapt high into the air, a rat, a horrid rat, shrieked the child, it ran over my foot, George did not shriek, but he, too, was startled, for the rat had appeared so suddenly, it came right out of the chest, he said, as if to excuse his alarm, it could not, said Pelham, bluntly, I was looking in the chest when Nanny shrieked, and there was nothing in it that I know, I saw no rat anywhere, but I saw it, said George, look, look, he shouted, excitedly, there it goes, just by your foot, you may depend upon it this box has a false bottom, let us turn it over and see, I believe you are right, George, said Pelham, hold the candle, man, and we will see where this rat came from, the chest, empty as it appeared to be, was yet so heavy that it was with difficulty that the two boys could turn it over, but they did it at last, and now there was no doubt where the rat had come from, for the floor was strewn with little bits of nibbled paper, and there was a biggish hole in the false bottom by which he had evidently gnawed his way into the chest, now, then, the fun is beginning, exclaimed Pelham, excitedly, we must get inside this false bottom, it is full of old letters, I can't see that much, perhaps we shall find a love letter of William the Conqueror to Joan of Arc, oh, Remember you will not, said Nanny, wisely, for Joan of Arc lived many reigns after William I. I read about her only last week, but neither Pelham nor George heeded Nanny's superior information, so busy were they prizing off the somewhat thin layer of wood which formed the false bottom of the chest, it gave way at last, and disclosed a whole heap of letters, some nibbled into mere powder by the busy red and some still uninjured and on the top of all a yellow parchment folio bearing in large letters the words, Will of George Pelham, Esquire, of Vale Place, Surrey, Pelham got very red as he exclaimed, excitedly, Surely this is the lost will, if the island we owe it to the rat, said George, half thinking Pelham was joking, I must take it at once to father, said Pelham, and he ran down the attic stairs closely followed by the no less excited George and Nanny, see, father, this will, is it right, will you have Vale Place after all, said Pelham, eagerly, as he held out the papers, Mr. Carteret took the bundle, looked at the heading, and then turned it hastily over to see the signatures at the end, yes, it was duly signed and witnessed, and without doubt was the long-sought will, why Mr. Pelham should have so carefully concealed his will was never explained, but people from time immemorial have done odd things with their wills, and will probably continue to do so, it was, after all, of little consequence now where it had been found, so long as the will was a true one, and of that no doubt was ever raised, before many months were over Mr. Carteret and his family were settled at Vale Place, where the mysterious chest, as Nanny always called it, has the place of honor in the entrance hall, S. Clarendon, a hundred years ago, true tales of the year 1805, aye aye, Senior Rossignol's performing birds, it was April, and the year 1805, when two little fellows, out for the day from Charterhouse School, 
stood at the bow window of a large house on Ludgate Hill, London, waiting for the return of their uncle from his country house. Here he comes, said the lads, as a portly figure came round the corner, and the next minute he was in the room, exclaiming, in his cheery way, Well, lads, glad to see you. What must we do this afternoon? Is it to be the Tower of London, or the river, or the monument? Anything you choose will suit me. Then, sir, said the elder boy, eagerly, do let us go and see the performing birds. All our fellows are talking about them. To be sure we will. I too, have heard about this Signor Rossignol, as he calls himself. And we will have a bit of dinner, and start off at once to Charing Cross. The bit of dinner proved to be a very ample meal, to which our schoolboys did full justice for school meals a hundred years ago were far from satisfying, and a dinner like this one was not a thing to be hurried over. However, there must come a time when even hungry schoolboys can eat no more, and at last, when even another fig seemed an impossibility, a start was made for the birds. They arrived at the hall in good time, and had excellent seats. Just facing the stage, when the curtain drew up, it disclosed a long table, on which were placed a dozen cages, each containing a little bird, their tutor, as Signor Rossignol styled himself, stood at the head of the table, and, after a low bow to the audience, he began, Behold my little family of birds, they have all the true military instinct, and are ready, as you will see, to do all in their power to defend this land of freedom. Loud and prolonged cheers greeted this speech, for the Battle of Trafalgar had not yet taken place and the dread of a sudden landing of the French tyrant was never long out of the thoughts of any Briton. When the cheering had ceased, Rossignol opened the cages one after another, and each bird hopped out in a sedate way, and placed itself on the table, waiting for orders. Fall in, shouted Rossignol, in a loud military voice, and at once the birds formed themselves into two ranks. Then their tutor fitted a little paper helmet onto each bird's head, and fixed tiny wooden muskets under their left wings. Thus equipped, the birds, at the word of command from their tutor, went through the usual exercises of soldiers amidst the applause of the audience. Then another bird, not previously exercised, was brought forward. Death of a deserter, explained the tutor, as six birds placed themselves three on each side of the new arrival, and solemnly conducted him from the top to the bottom of the table, where there was a small brass cannon, charged with a little gunpowder. The unfortunate deserter was placed in front of this cannon, his guards retired in an orderly way, and he was left alone to meet his fate. A lighted match was now put into the claws of another bird, who hopped slowly up to the cannon and discharged it. At the sound of the explosion the deserter fell down onto the table, and lay there as if rigid in death. Oh, I say, that is too bad, said the younger boy. I don't think poor birds ought to be blown from the gun like that. It's cruel, is it not, sir? Before the uncle could reply came the sharp order, Stand, and, behold, the dead deserter came to life again, and hopped away to join his friends. The birds were now replaced in their cages, and it was the senior's turn to occupy the stage. First of all he gave a clever imitation of the notes of all birds, ending up with the prolonged judge of the nightingale which he did to such perfection that you could hardly believe there was not a grow full of those birds on the stage. He may well call himself, Rossignol, the French for Nightingale, said the boy's uncle as he gave a hearty clap to the clever performer. 
for he seems as real a nightingale as I ever listened to. Next Rossignol produced a fiddle without any strings to it, and going through all the airs and graces of a real violinist, he sawed the air with an imaginary bow, making the notes with his voice so well that you could not imagine it was not a real violin playing. This delighted the audience most of all, and he was encored again and again, and when the entertainment was finished, the two boys said they wished they could have it all over again. For many months Rossignol continued to draw large audiences to hear his imitation of birds, and see. But one fatal day it was discovered that the sounds were produced by an instrument probably a pierced peach stone which he concealed in his mouth, and after that no one cared to hear him, and he died in great poverty a few years later. S. Clarendon, the boy tramp, continued from page 27. Chapter V. My chief fear when I went to bed that night was that I might not wake early the following morning, for in this event my departure would have to be put off. I must leave Ascot House before any of the Turtons were up. If I left at all, I was bent upon getting away from Castlemore at the very earliest moment. In my room there were three beds, two being unoccupied during the holidays, and there was a chest of drawers which I shared with my companions. On the knob of one of the drawers hung the bag in which were kept my brush and comb, and this I thought would serve to hold the few things I intended to take with me, not daring to get the things ready that night, lest Mr. Turton should pay one of his occasional visits to the bedroom when he turned out the gas. I lay down, and in spite of the important coming event, soon fell fast asleep. When I awoke the sun shone into the room, and getting out of bed and looking at the watch which was to be shortly converted into money, I saw that it was twenty minutes to six, losing no time over dressing, putting on the better of my tunicker suits, I removed the brush and comb from the bag, putting in their place two pairs of stockings, a spare flannel shirt, a pair of dumb shoes, two handkerchiefs, and a flannel cricket cap, having little fear that anyone but the servants would be about the house, I tightened the string of my bag, and went quietly downstairs. In the room where we kept our hats and overcoats I put on my laced boots, which already were somewhat thin in the sole lace, and my straw hat, as the sun had been extremely hot the last few days, and then I began to think of breakfast, because I made up my mind that it would be wise not to attempt to dispose of my watch and chain until Castlemore had been left some distance behind, about ten miles on the London road, although I did not know the precise distance, stood the small town of Broughton, and there, I thought, it might be safe to replenish my exchequer, consequently, having not a penny in my purse at present, I must wait until I reached Broughton for breakfast, unless it were possible to obtain something to eat before I left the school, so, leaving my bag in the hat room, I went to the kitchen, where the cook was in the act of lighting the fire, good morning, cook, I said, you are up early this morning, Master Everard, she answered, I am most awfully hungry. I continued, do you think you could give me something to eat? Turning her broad back to the fireplace, she stared at me from head to foot, seeming especially to be impressed by the fact that I had put on my boots, but if she had a suspicion of my intention, she kept it to herself, and going to the larder, returned with a plate on which lay a thick slice of dry bread and another of cold beef, thanking her, I took the bread and meat and left the plate, then, returning to the hat room for my bag, and bolted the front door without making a noise and walked calmly away from the house, beginning to eat my breakfast as soon as I reached the road. It was a beautiful summer morning, and the birds sang in the garden trees as I walked towards the margin of the town.
Holding my bag by the long string I let it hang over my left shoulder, and stepping out briskly soon passed the last houses in Castlemore. Although my chief feeling was one of relief at having left Ascot House and the Turtons behind, it was impossible to avoid a glance back at the days which I had spent so happily with the window shams. I no longer had the least doubt that Captain Dalton had been lost with the seal, and as I covered the first mile or two of my long journey, I became impressed with a conviction of all the difference his death had made to my life. Instead of Sandhurst, I could not tell what lay before me, and yet I scarcely doubted that, whatever it might be, the end would prove satisfactory. I determined to lose no time over my first stage, and after walking for three quarters of an hour, I passed a finger post, which conveyed the information that Brown lay still eight miles distant. Although I had told myself yesterday that Mr. Turton was very unlikely to start in pursuit, that he would be only too glad to get rid of an unremunerative boarder, this morning seemed to make the affair look different. He might consider that his duty compelled him to set out in search of the runaway, so that it would be wise not to rest until the first ten miles had been put between myself and the school. I felt anxious to reach Brown, in order to dispose of my watch and chain being already somewhat afraid that there might arise some difficulty about its disposal. I had never attempted to sell anything before, nor was it easy to form an opinion concerning the value of the only things I had to barter. Still, four pounds appeared a likely sum, or three pounds ten at the lowest, and this would surely serve to provide food and shelter until I reached London. Very few persons passed me by the way, but coming within sight of the first houses of the small town, which was in reality little more than a large village, I began to overtake and soon passed a man who I little imagined would cross my path again. Broughton is approached by a long decline, at the foot of which, on the right, stands a rural inn. Before its door this morning were a couple of wagons, one laden with hay, the other with sheep turnips. A small frock carter stood eating a chunk of bread and fat bacon, while a fox terrier begged for scraps. Having walked ten miles in the hot sunshine, I was glad of any excuse to halt, so that a few minutes after passing the man in the road, I stopped to watch the dog. While I stood there the man caught me up again, and he also came to a stop. Between myself and the wagons, he was quite young, probably not more than one or two and twenty, tall and well built, although he walked with a slouching gait. He wore corduroy trousers fastened round the waist by a narrow strap and a blue shirt, with an unbuttoned jacket of festion. On his head was a limp-brimmed, dirty, drab felt hat, and in his left hand he carried a red handkerchief, which apparently contained all his possessions, and in his right a stout stick which had been obviously cut from a hedge. His hair was extremely short and black, but he could not have shaved for some days. His face was deeply sunburned and one of the most evil-looking I had ever seen. I imagined that he was looking for a job at haymaking or harvesting, and in that case he would have little difficulty in finding one at the present season. Without entering the inn, he walked on towards the main street, which contained two dozen or more of small shops, and a few minutes later I took the same direction, soon beginning to look about for the kind of shop I wanted. After I had passed the tramp a second time, I saw the usual sign of a pawnbroker's, and thinking it would look better to remove my watch and chain before entering. I took the bar out of my buttonhole, stopping outside the shop. I stood a few minutes gazing in at its window, which was filled with a miscellaneous collection, teapots, telescopes, knives, spoons, pipes, 
and one or two flutes and concertinas. Presently I summoned enough resolution to enter, and going to the counter, held out the watch and chain to the rather elderly man behind it. I want to sell this watch and chain, I said. Oh, you do, do you? He answered, and opening the watch, he began to examine the works. He looked so doubtful that I began to fear he would refuse to buy, in which case I scarcely knew what to do, as it seemed unlikely that I should find another such shop that day. It was already past eleven o'clock, and after my walk I was beginning to feel hungry. Certainly he had no right to buy the watch from a boy of my age, but I suppose that after a little hesitation he was unable to resist the temptation to make a bargain. How much do you want for it? He asked, as he closed the lid with a snap. Four pounds, I answered, thinking that a reasonable demand, still holding the watch with the chain hanging down between his fingers. He broke into a laugh which did not sound very merry. Four pounds, he exclaimed. Think yourself lucky if you get ten shillings. I will give you fifteen. It was a terrible disappointment. But at the time it did not occur to me to doubt the man's good faith. I came to the conclusion that I had ignorantly overvalued my property. And at least fifteen shillings would be better than nothing. Very well. I answered. And, placing the watch and chain on a shelf behind him, the man opened a drawer under the counter, while he slowly counted out the money in silver. I happened to glance at the window. In a moment my eyes seemed to be riveted by those of the tramp, whose existence I had quite forgotten. He stood outside the shop, watching me with the greatest intentness, and suddenly I felt afraid, and wished he had gone on his way, and left me to go mine. I spent as long a time as possible counting the money and putting it in my knickerbocker's pocket, but when I at last left the shop the tramp was still staring in at the window. Still, He took no notice of me as I walked away from the door, not even turning his head, with money in my pocket. My appetite suddenly became urgent, and seeing a coffee shop a little further down the street, I entered and sat down at a table, which sadly required scrubbing. An untidy girl came to ask what I wanted, but when I suggested a chop for chops and steaks was painted over the window she said I could only have eggs and bacon. I will have some eggs and bacon, I answered. Poached or boiled? She asked. Poached. Please. Tea or coffee? She suggested. Coffee. I replied. And, after waiting ten minutes or longer, I was supplied with a plate of hot eggs and bacon, a thick slice of bread, and a cup of coffee. Not in a mood to be very particular. I ate every scrap with the greatest relish. And altogether I could not have spent less than three quarters of an hour in the coffee shop. My meal cost eight pence and its effect was to make me feel extremely lazy and sleepy, but, having a long day before me, I determined to find some shady spot and rest for an hour or two until the heat of the day had passed, then I would push along until I was about twenty miles from Castlemore, when I must find a lodging for the night, continued on page 44, George I.I., at D.D.I.N.G.N., at the Battle of Dattingen, George I.I., was on horseback, and rode forward to reconnoiter the enemy. The horse, frightened by the cannonading, ran away with the king, and nearly carried him into the midst of the French lines. Fortunately, however, one of the attendants succeeded in stopping him, and ensign seized the horse's bridle, and enabled the king to dismount. Now that I am on my own legs, said he, I am sure that I shall not run away. The king then abandoned his horse, and fought on foot at the head of his Hanoverian battalions 
with his sword drawn and his body placed in the attitude of a fencing master who is about to make a lunge, he continued to expose himself without flinching to the enemy's fire, and in bad English, but with the utmost pluck and spirit, called to his men to come on. This was the last occasion upon which a sovereign of Great Britain was under the fire of an enemy. My friend, who is my friend? Not he who seeks by flattery to sway, who, whether I be good or bad, gives me his praise always. Who is my friend? Not he who frowns on me when I am wrong, but never gives encouragement to make me glad and strong. Who is my friend? Tis he who makes my highest good his aim, whose love sincere is shown alike in praise or wholesome blame. Edike. Heroes and heroines of famous books. Ida watchers on the longships. The scene of this story is laid at Land's End in Cornwall. Or, to be precise, to the west of the little village of Senan Cove. And the time chosen is toward the end of last century. The month of the year was November. And the night was wild and tempestuous. So that the storm beat against the little thatched cottage in one room of which a woman was dying. Gathered about her bed was her husband. Owen Trezillian and their son Philip and daughter Mary. We pass over the sad scene connected with the death of Mrs. Trezillian, just referring to her last words to the father of her children. There had been times in Owen's life when, finding himself without means and without work, with one staring himself, his wife, and his family, in the face, he had resorted to bad ways of obtaining money. He would never have yielded to the temptation had it not been for the persuasive words and occasionally the threats of his mates. Many of these men were wreckers, that is to say, they deliberately placed on the coast false lights which lured passing ships to destruction. It was from the wrecks of the disabled vessels that they gathered up the treasures carried to them by the waves, and it was known that one or two of the more desperate characters among them had not hesitated to throw back into the water the poor unfortunate creatures whom they had lured to destruction, as they struggled to reach the shore. Owen, indeed, had never gone thus far, but he had participated in their illicit games, and had himself helped to kindle the lights that were to wreck the boats. His dying wife, whose trouble when she heard of this was very great, had made him promise that whatever might occur after her death, he would never again be guilty of such wicked work. He had promised her faithfully that none should ever force him again to engage in such undertakings, and he had added solemnly, They may kill me first, but I would rather starve than do it. Scarcely had she finished speaking to husband and children, when wild shouts were heard outside the cottage, from the midst of the storm. Come on, men, come on a wreck, a wreck. Lights passed the little windows and the clatter of many feet along the path close by told the family what manner of men were about. The story goes on to tell how on, after his wife's death, his son Philip and his daughter Mary, endeavored to lead lives very different from those of the greater number of their neighbors. They had come under the influence of Wesley's teaching, and were not afraid to let it be seen that they wished to honor God and keep his commandments. Owen's mates, who had known him in the days when he had thought very much as they did, left no stone and turned to show their ill will to him and his family now that so marked a change had taken place. There was in the village a certain Arthur Pendreen. He was the son of old Squire Pendreen, who had at first greatly opposed his son's wish to become a clergyman. On one occasion, when Wesley had been preaching in the village, and had been in danger from the rough crowd, Arthur, then but a boy, had been so indignant at their behavior that he had rushed forward with the intention of placing himself between the old man and his rough assailants. A few days later this story reached the squire's ears, who, 
in a violent passion, sent for his son and told him that if he ever went near the Methodists again, he would disinherit him and turn him out of doors. A few years later, when, between 16 and 17 years of age, the youth left school, he told his father boldly that he wished to go to Oxford, and that he intended to become a clergyman. The boy had a hard time of it before he won the old squire's consent, but in time leave was given. Arthur Pendreen had from the first taken a keen interest in the Trezillian family, and had watched most carefully over Philip. He was aware of the ill will felt by the rest of the villagers towards his charges, and made it no secret that he was one of the sternest opponents of the evil practice of wrecking. It was well known that Arthur had set his face against their evil designs, and that it was his determination to have a lighthouse built, no matter at what cost, to warn off ships from this deadly dangerous spot. The worst disposed among the men would have made short work of the young clergyman could they have had their way and escaped consequences. At least, they would prevent, if it lay in their power, the carrying out of his cherished plan, the erection of a lighthouse. It was perhaps natural that hating the parson, they should not feel kindly disposed towards those who closely followed his advice and over whom he so carefully watched. It was in these circumstances that the following occurrences took place. Arthur was about to ride to St. Senan one Sunday morning, when his faithful old servant, Roger, came up to him and said, I hear, Mr. Arthur, that a cutter with a press gang on board is at anchor off Senan Cove. Sunday is a favorite day for those chaps to land, they always find the men at home then, and so they are easier to catch. I thought I would warn you about it, sir, because their game is to carry off all the men and lads who are called Methodists. This is bad news. Arthur had replied, I knew a press gang was in the neighborhood, but never thought of their coming our way. I will gallop down to Senan Cove at once. Arrived at the cove, Arthur found everything as usual. The cutter lying quietly at anchor and a few men and boys sitting or lying lazily on the beach watching her, and speculating as to the intentions of those on board. On Sunday afternoon we again see the young curate, we hear his stern voice as he asks a group of six stalwart men. What are you doing here, men? Take your hands off those lads at once, what right have you to drag them away? We see the men, furious at this repulse, falling upon Arthur from behind and dragging him to the ground, and Philip with him, the young clergyman, brave man that he was, was no match for six assailants at once, and was of course unable to withstand the combined attack, promising Philip that he would have him released when he reached Plymouth, for he was under seventeen and handing him as a memento a small testament, and commending him to the care of God. He was obliged to witness the rowing away of the boat that carried his young charge every minute farther out of sight. Philip's capture would not have been brought about had it not been for the ill designs of the youths of his own age who were no friends to Arthur Pendreen. The scheme for decoying him into the immediate neighborhood of the press gang belonged to two of the worst characters in the village, but we will not enter into details of their scheming. It is enough to know that for the time being their wicked designs were successful, and we find Philip within a very short time on board the Royal Sovereign, one of the finest line of battleships in Earl Howe's fleet. The trouble and grief of his father and little sister when they learned what had happened was great. Owen at first refused all comfort. It was in vain that Mr. Pendreen promised to spare no pains to bring the lad home again, the bereaved father would not be comforted. It was in this state of mind that he set out for Falmouth, accompanied by Arthur Pendreen, 
as they thought it not improbable that the cutter might put into this port before proceeding to Plymouth. Her crew were, however, too wide awake, and the press gang too anxious to secure prize money, to run any risk of losing those whom they had captured, and pressed for His Majesty's Navy, they therefore made straight for the fleet. How Philip Trezillian subsequently fought in the Battle of the 1st of June, how he saw for the first time and understood something of the horrors of war, are all graphically described by the author, concluded on page 42. Footnote, this favorite book is by James F. Cobb, Wells Gardner, Darden, and Company London, Heroes and Heroines of Famous Books, Ida Watchers on the Longships, concluded from page 39. We shall now take a peep at the lighthouse and its first watcher, that will never be finished, said one of the wreckers, when he saw the work slowly progressing on the lonely rock at land's end, but it was finished. Arthur Pendrine wrote to many rich ship owners in London and elsewhere, and at length, by the aid of their money and the toil of skillful workmen, a light began to burn in the longship's lighthouse on September 29, 1795. Those were early days of lighthouses and experience had hardly yet proved the risk and the danger of leaving one man alone on a solitary rock to attend to the lights, often cut off for days, or even weeks, from all communication with the shore. In these days things are very different. Three men, and sometimes four, are appointed to take charge of lighthouses, such as the longships, Eddystone, and others. One night a furious gale from the southwest raged along the coast, Many were the watchers at Senan and other villages along the shore, keeping a sharp lookout for wrecks, but whether owing to the lighthouse or to the fact that there were not many vessels about just then, the evil hopes of those who were longing to profit by the misfortunes of others were frustrated. Owen felt very anxious about the lonely lighthouse keeper, whom he could not help thinking of as trimming his lamps on the solitary rock with the roar of the ocean around and below him. He knew that one who had not been there could not possibly have any idea of the awful noise on the longship's rock occasioned by the roaring and the raging of the waves in the caverns underneath. We cannot stay to describe all that Jordan, the lighthouse keeper, in his loneliness experienced, nor to tell how the waves, leaping above the lighthouse, sometimes completely covered it. We see him as he walks about, now up and now down, almost terrified by the fierce yells and shrieks which fell upon his ears and at last watch him, in despair, fling himself upon his bed, oh, that he had never been tempted to come to this accursed, haunted rock for haunted he felt certain it was, like most sailors, he was more or less superstitious, and the angry roar in the caverns beneath sounded to him like the roar of hundreds of imprisoned wild beasts, until, by and by, losing all his presence of mind, his hair turns white in a single night with terror, and he becomes a maniac, it was thus that Arthur Pendrine found him several days later, when, seeing, to his great grief, that the lamps were unlit, he put out to learn the cause in a little boat manned by Owen and one or two of his friends, Owen and the Oth. 